Listen, I know that there are a million other fun things to do in the world than estate planning, <laughs> but they're important. And the one way to think about it is it's not really for you because you're going to be gone. It's really a gift to those you leave behind, whether it's your spouse, your children, your other family members, or even charities. If you go to a job site, you don't necessarily go to the toolbox first and pull out all your tools and then go to the job site to build the house. You'll go figure out first what you need to do that day to build the house and then go to your toolbox and pick the right tools. There are three types of information in the world. There's things that you know, there's things that you don't know, and the worst are the things that you don't know that you don't know. You are listening to the Financial Clarity for Doctors podcast by Finity Group LLC, where we discuss the pertinent financial planning topics facing physicians and other medical professionals. Discussions in this show should not be construed as specific recommendations or investment advice. Always consult with your investment professional before making important investment decisions. Securities offered through Cambridge Investment Research, Inc., a registered broker-dealer, member FINRA SIPC. And now, here are your hosts, Rochelle Vanderzanden and Corey Janoff. Welcome to Financial Clarity for Doctors. I'm Corey Janoff, joined by Rochelle Vanderzanden, and we have a special guest today, Bob Cabasi. He's an attorney who specializes in estate planning, and full disclosure, he's done estate planning for me. He does a lot of the legal work for Affinity Group as well, Um, but he's very good at what he does, and we asked him to come on today to answer some questions about estate planning, which is important for everyone, especially for those of you that have children or, or loved ones that you care about. Now, full disclosure, this is not to be considered legal advice. It's more informational only if you do have questions pertaining to your unique situation, please consult legal counsel licensed in your state. Um, If you are in Oregon or Washington, feel free to reach out to us and we can maybe point you in touch with uh, Bob or someone else uh, that would be a good fit for you. But with that, thanks for joining us, Bob. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me on the episode today. Yes. Um, Yeah, just to get started, I was actually hoping... I feel like a lot of people just don't understand the basics of estate planning. Can you just tell us some typical parts of like estate planning documents and why they're important? Sure. A lot of people think of estate planning as getting your will done, but estate planning is a much bigger process. There's planning during lifetime, which obviously your firm does. There's also planning for incapacity or death. Uh, estate planning during lifetime can mean financial planning, but it can also mean Uh, business planning, transition planning, uh, buys and sells of businesses. It can mean LLC formations, investments. So it, it can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. I think the most common definition of estate planning when people think of estate planning is having a will. And really, when we're doing estate planning, we want to think about is a will appropriate or is maybe having a trust appropriate? Also, we need to cover incapacity, such as having a power of attorney. Further, we've got to cover health care decisions. Who's going to make health care decisions for you in the event you can't make health care decisions for yourself? There's one other aspect, and a lot of people forget about this. Uh, it's for those who have children. 
uh, especially the adult children, parents sometimes forget to get HIPAA waivers for their adult children so that the parents can find out what's going on medically with their children if an emergency arises. Uh, so we've got to cover a lot of different things with estate planning. It does not have to be complicated, uh, but there are several questions and concepts that need to be covered when completing any type of plan process, both during life and at death. And for those of uh, our audience that don't necessarily know, what is a power of attorney? What exactly does that do? Sure. A power of attorney grants the ability, either through a limited mechanism for just set items or uh, a general power of attorney, basically giving the person who you've named complete control over all of your financial decisions and any other decisions that you would make day to day, such as getting your mail, paying your bills, um, entering into contracts, selling your assets. It really only covers assets in your own name, though. So a lot of people think a power of attorney is necessary if you have a trust. And we can cover trust in a little bit. Uh, but typically, a trustee is a fiduciary over a trust, where a power of attorney has power over assets in your own name. Speaking of fiduciaries, to keep in mind there's a lot of different fiduciaries such as guardian, which is power over person, power of attorney, power over your financial assets, uh, trustee, power over any trust, and personal representative that would or executor. That would be the person in charge of handling your estate going through the probate process. Hope that answers your question. Yeah. You mentioned the key word there, probate process. What uh, Can you explain what that is? Sure. Probate is a court process to transfer assets from someone who's died to living heirs. A lot of people think that if you have a will, you avoid probate, and that may or may not be true. Uh, it depends really on how your assets are titled. So, for example, if I have property titled in my own name and I were to die, nobody has legal authority to transfer that asset to my heirs. Even if my will says, here's who my executor is and here's who receives my property, that person doesn't have legal authority to transfer title to the house in my example. They would have to take my will to court through a process called probate to get appointed as the executor and once appointed as the executor and go through the steps that are required of probate in the jurisdiction where the house is, uh, at the end of that process they can then transfer the property uh, legally to the heirs that I've outlined. It is a public process. It takes time. Most jurisdictions a minimum of four months, maybe longer. And, uh, you know, lawyers can make good money in probates. So a lot of people want to try to avoid that. And what are some ways to potentially avoid probate? There are several ways to avoid probate. A lot of people think owning assets jointly with right of survivorship or owning assets with your spouse uh, jointly is an easy way to avoid probate. And while that may work at the first death, uh, it doesn't necessarily contemplate any tax planning and it also uh, probably will not work at the second death or won't work at the second death because the surviving spouse who has the assets, then the assets are in their name and whether they have a will or not, they're likely going to have to go through the probate process. Another way that's very common and becoming increasingly common is to have a trust. And a lot of people think trusts are, have to be complicated or, or are for the super wealthy 
but in reality they're not. A trust really is like a bucket, and a bucket holds things like dirt and rocks. Well, in this case, a trust holds title to assets, and because the trust holds title to assets, uh, it can function during your lifetime where you're in charge of it, and then at your death, the trust survives you, and you can name a successor trustee who can just step in and take control of the trust assets and follow your instructions in the trust without having to go through probate. It's a very common probate avoidance mechanism. And when do you usually recommend people set up like basic estate planning documents like a will or a trust? Great question. It's not based on any type of financial wealth, although that can trigger the ability to set up or the desire to set up an estate plan. Really, an estate plan should be established if you have children, uh, if you have any type of assets, and um, uh, if you want to let people know where you want your stuff to pass if something were to happen to you. Uh, basically, any time before death is a good time to set up an estate plan. It's <laughs> hard to do after death. <laughs> There are some post-mortem techniques that we have at our disposal, but they're very difficult and sometimes they do not work. So we have to make sure to uh, do planning during lifetime. It's important to do that. So wills versus trusts, when might someone want to go one direction versus the other? Very good question. And it's bare bones. A person may want to do a will uh, in order to keep things just simple or they need something done very quickly. A lot of times a trust will be done if the family or the individual doing the planning wants to avoid probate. We also use trust to help avoid taxes, uh, specifically estate taxes, as a number of jurisdictions have estate tax. And what's interesting is, uh, unless you plan, it's likely you will pay the most amount of taxes. And specifically, again, we're talking about estate taxes. And according to the AARP, about 6 out of 10 people don't do any planning whatsoever. So they could be susceptible to probate and taxes without doing any planning. So, listen, I know that there are a million other fun things to do in the world than estate planning. (laughs) And it's difficult sometimes to turn the television off and think through these things because we're thinking about our mortality. But they're important, and the one way to think about it is it's not really for you because you're going to be gone. It's really a gift to those you leave behind, whether it's your spouse, your children, your other family members, or even charities. Now, for those that don't know, can you explain estate taxes, what exactly those are? Sure. There's two types of estate taxes generally in the United States. There's a federal estate tax, and each state can also impose its own estate tax. Uh, Currently, a small number of states have estate tax. Unfortunately, Oregon and Washington are two states that have estate tax. And federally, there is also an estate tax. However, there are some exemptions from estate tax. Currently, in 2019, an individual is allowed to pass $11,400,000 tax-free for federal purposes. Every dollar over that would be taxed at 40%. For state purposes, which a lot of CPAs and planners forget or people forget about, we have to take into account the state estate tax 
In Oregon, that limit is a million dollars, and everything over a million dollars is taxed 10 to 16 percent. Everything in Washington over $2,193,000 is taxed at 10 to 20 percent. Surprisingly, California has no estate tax. <laughs> yeah. uh, and also, you may hear about this idea of portability. Well, if I don't use it, my spouse gets it. That does exist at the federal level. Uh, for any remaining exemption amounts, but it does not exist at the state levels. So doing planning is important, if not for federal tax, certainly for a, for state estate tax purposes. And those numbers could change. Like I know there's proposals, and we've seen lower thresholds before, too. We've seen thresholds as low as $600,000 during my tenure. They've been historically as low as $60,000. Um, currently, they're at their highest level ever, with the exception of 2010, when there was no estate tax for one year. Those numbers are subject to change based on what our uh, leaders in Congress and our legislatures decide. So depending on who's in office and who controls the House and the Senate, we could see those numbers go up and down. Just like every other tax law. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of things to consider, obviously. Um, is there anything in particular that you encourage people to look for when they are trying to pick someone to be responsible for their, their choices when they're medically incapacitated or after they pass? Yes, it's really important to pick people who you trust, number one, to carry out your instructions. But those people uh, also need to really be honest. They need to make prudent decisions. They've got to be good communicators. They should be patient. They should be organized. It's almost like we're looking for the perfect person here, but we have to keep in mind that the people you choose are what are called fiduciaries. That means they're held to a higher standard than just themselves. And they must do the right thing for the people. And if you have any doubt that the person is not going to follow your instructions, not be a good communicator or cause problems, then they're probably not the person to pick. So it's very important to be careful in your selection. Sometimes we have uh, the ability to identify one person. Other times we need a committee of people to make the decision. So it's really good to consult with your professional advisors about what's right in your circumstances. What happens if someone passes away or becomes incapacitated and they don't have any of these legal documents in place? Well, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your perspective, the legislature has already prepared a plan for you in the state statutes. If you pass away, it's called intestacy, and likely you'll have to go through probate, and then there's an order of how bills get paid, uh, and who receives your estate, uh, depending on what your family makeup is, whether it's a first marriage or second marriage, whether you have children, parents, siblings, etc., there is an order of payment. Oftentimes, intestacy can cause confusion uh, and disappointment, depending on what the person's expressed intent was if they have not expressed it in a valid estate plan. So intestacy is not always the greatest thing, but as I said before, six out of ten people don't have any form of estate plan, so they may be looking at the legislature's plan for them. As it relates to incapacity, again, we have a statutory process for the appointment of a guardian to 
help control and make decisions over the person who is considered a protected person who needs help or guidance in terms of their care, their decision-making, etc. It's a little bit of the same um, mindset as being a parent, although you're not a parent over a minor, you're the parent over someone who's usually older than you. But because of age or illness or other issues, uh, medical issues, they they are having trouble making their own decisions or can't make their own decisions, or they are determined by the court to be harmful to themselves or others. So fortunately, we have a court process that we can go through to appoint an individual uh, to make certain that they're taken care of. I think the guardianship over children is probably the biggest concern for the folks that we typically work with, younger doctors with young children. And if you have an estate plan, you can name a designated person. But if you don't, how does that individual get assigned? Right. Good question. It's best to name a guardian over your wills. We do a lot of wills for people just to name guardians, especially if they don't have assets, because they want their children... Uh, being placed with somebody that they trust and that they know will be a good second choice for caring for their children when they're not there to care for them. When a will is not in place, uh, usually a relative will petition the court to become the child's guardian if a relative is available. The court will appoint a visitor to uh, determine whether that person is qualified to care for the children, and if they are qualified, often the court will follow the visitor's report and allow the child to go live with uh, the new family. Keep in mind that this is very traumatic for children because they've lost their parent and now they're being placed with a new family, whether it's relatives or not. And so having plans in place ahead of time is pretty important to minimize any trauma and burden that the kids are going to be facing. What if multiple people raise their hand and say, hey, court, I can take the kids? That does happen from time to time. And as a result of that, the visitor goes and interviews everybody, makes a report to the court, objections are heard. Fights can erupt, and the judge will have to make a decision as to who's going to be best for the children. The judge in courts will always act in the best interest of the children. So it's not rock, paper, scissors? No. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any hierarchy, like a, a grandparent automatically has an upper hand over an aunt and uncle or anything like that? It's all set by statute and outlined in the statutes, not necessarily a hierarchy. Again, the court's going to act in the best interest of the uh, children, uh, and place them uh, consistent with the statutes and what the court thinks uh, based on the visitor's report and sometimes examination of the parties, who's going to be best for the children. Okay. So assuming you're one of those four out of ten people that's done their homework and, <laughs> and, and put together an estate plan, how often do you recommend people update those documents? I think you should look at them every three to five years or so, just even if it's a short, okay, everything's in order. I think you should look at them if you've had a change of circumstances, marital status, uh, financial windfall or financial loss. Uh, also, change of intent. You know, life happens and unfolds as we go day to day, and sometimes People fall out of favor or come into favor, and so anytime our intent changes, we want to make sure an update. We should also keep an eye on the tax rules because as those change, 
Um, we may want to update the plan. And finally, we want to, if you reside, if you move and reside in a state that does or does not have a state tax, you may want to update for those particular state laws. And I think that was a, a good follow-up question. We were kind of wondering, when you do move from one state to another, are there any implications for those documents themselves? Like, would they not be valid for any reason? Or Most states, if, if not all states, will follow the Uniform International Wills Act, so we try to make the documents as useful as possible in all jurisdictions. But keep in mind, each state has its own rules and own statutes and laws. And so where the laws of one state may benefit somebody, if the plan's not designed right, uh, the people who have moved may not get the benefits. So for example, a very common difference between Oregon and Washington is that Washington is a community property jurisdiction where Oregon typically is not, although there are some references to community property in the statutes. Um, so a move from Washington to Oregon or Oregon to Washington will want to take into account community property, the differences in the uh, tax limits, estate tax limits that we talked about before, um, and make sure we examine each state's laws and uh, comply with those as it relates to our documents. So a move should necessitate at least looking at the documents. Some accounts or assets you can name a beneficiary on to pass the asset directly to that to an individual if you pass away. Other assets can be passed per the instructions in your will or a trust. What's the difference between the two and what happens if they contradict each other? That's one of the common mistakes we see is where someone will have an intent expressed in their will or trust but then have their beneficiary designations set up differently. Beneficiary designations come in three different types. It could be a POD, payable on death, TOD, transfer on death, or a typical beneficiary designation such as a, on a 401k or an IRA or life insurance. Uh, usually state law will control those situations and when the designation, the beneficiary designation is made, that will be followed by the custodial agreement either at the bank or at the insurance company or the custodian of the IRA. So beneficiary designations will take precedence over the will or the trust. So imagine if a parent chooses to uh, leave their assets to their children in their will and they set up their beneficiary designation as their brother uh, because that's who it was before they had children and they forget to change it, then the brother would be the beneficiary of that account and the children would get anything that did not pass by beneficiary designation. So that's where there could be some confusion and some disappointment. So having your beneficiary designations coordinated with your overall estate plan is a very important part of the process and something we advise clients on to do. That makes a lot of sense. I didn't actually realize that that trumps the will, basically. Yes. I thought maybe that there would be something like, well, this was designated at this date and the will was created on this date. But uh, Are there scenarios where maybe like if an ex-spouse is still listed on an account as a beneficiary, could a judge 
preside over that and say clearly the intent is different, or how does that work? Well, fortunately, our legislatures contemplated that here in the state of Oregon, and in many states has. So when you have an ex-spouse, typically they are deemed to have been removed from the will or the beneficiary designations. But that may not always be the case, depending on when the beneficiary designation was implemented and what the rules of the custodial contract are and what any uh, fights erupt in court and what a judge orders. So, you know, we want to follow the statutes uh, and we want to follow the estate plan and we hope they're all coordinated because when they're not, that's a little bit uh, of enrichment to the legal profession as people fight things out in court. Do you see things like life insurance and other tools incorporated into estate planning for tax purposes or anything like that? Well, the operative word there is tool. Those are definitely great tools. Mm -hmm. And uh, estate planning, think of estate planning as having a, a number of arrows in a quiver. Life insurance would be one of those tools or an arrow in the quiver to accomplish certain purposes. So, for example... Uh, sometimes life insurance is used for liquidity purposes uh, because there's not enough liquidity in the estate and we need cash available to do things. Sometimes life insurance is used as an equalization tool so that some children can get property and others can get cash who may not want the property. It can also be used to pay estate tax and cover estate tax or as a leverage gifting leverage mechanism. So. Each of these techniques that we look at whenever we're doing an estate plan need to be contemplated to carry out the client's intent and use tools appropriately. And let me give you an example. If you go to a job site, you don't necessarily go to the toolbox first and pull out all your tools and then go to the job site to build the house. You'll go figure out first what you need to do that day to build the house and then go to your toolbox and pick the right tools. So where you might need a claw hammer, you're not going to pick a ball peen hammer or a sledgehammer. You're going to pick the claw hammer to pound in the nails. Similarly, you know, you may need term insurance or you may need whole life insurance or you may need no insurance, a will or a trust we really look at the scenario first and then pick the right tools to match the client's goals at the end. You mentioned the word liquidity earlier in that answer. I think that's a maybe a piece that people often overlooked. For example, maybe someone has a lot of their assets tied up in, say, real estate, and maybe there's loans on those properties, and if they pass away, the designated beneficiary may not be in a position to take on those loans or liens, and that's where you go to the toolbox beforehand, hopefully. Beforehand, right, right. Many lenders today are requiring insurance to cover situations like you've described, but in situations where the insurance or liquidity in the estate doesn't exist and the loans are called due uh, or estate taxes are due, uh, which are due nine months after the date of death. Uh, if there's not enough liquidity in the estate, sometimes we've got to sell things or we've got to borrow money or otherwise raise the capital to pay estate tax or pay loans off or do things. 
it's really best to plan for those things in advance and have an organized estate. That's where the professionals can really work together because the financial planners will have an idea of what's coming up, what's necessary. The estate planner will have an idea. And when they work together, the client will get the best result. That's what I'll often tell people is the first person to call when you pass away is going to be the bank that holds your mortgage because they don't want an outstanding loan to a dead person. So you need to plan accordingly for that. Yeah, yeah. Although a dead person's credit I don't think matters that much anymore. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) And so with all of this, I feel like there's this family at the end that's left without their loved one. And I feel like sometimes these things come up and they're a surprise. Like, how important is it that the family is aware of the details that are in that estate plan? This really depends on the family situation. I do a lot of family retreats where we talk about wealth and estate planning with families. We talk about communication skills. We talk about perceptions and perspectives. And in many cases, we'll even talk about the estate plan, although we rarely, if ever, talk about numbers in the estate plan. Uh, In some families, it's a really good idea to talk about it in advance. In other families uh, that have communication challenges, it can cause unnecessary stress and shouldn't be mentioned. (laughs) So the family dynamic is really important to gauge and to discuss with the client to determine whether or not these things should be talked about, uh, should be shared, because some unintentional damage could be done, or in some cases, some unintentional surprises can occur. So it's really Mm family-specific. Maybe at the very least, the parties who are involved are required to execute, help execute the estate plan, like the trustee or an executor or a guardian, you know, those parties should probably be privy of what the game plan is ahead of time. Sometimes. <laughs> uh, it's it's uh, One of the questions I get quite a bit is whether they should get permission for someone to serve as guardian or as executor or as trustee. And while those are good questions to ask of the people that you trust, and usually people do want to be helpful and the answer is yes, it would be good to know if someone is honored to serve in that role but doesn't want to so that you can pick a backup. Uh, But that doesn't necessarily mean you have to describe how the plan works and who's getting what and fill in all the details with that individual. It's more of a let's make sure that they're willing to do this in case something happens to me conversation so that, um, you know, we're not surprised at the end. Oftentimes we'll have backups. So if we're not going to ask for permission in advance, we'll have a backup and the person can refuse that position that they're appointed to uh, and say, I don't want to do it, in which case we'll go to the backup. I guess I'm more thinking along the lines of if, you know, you and your spouse die in a car accident someone needs to know where to find the will probably otherwise how does it get or or, you know how how does if it's stored in a safe somewhere but no one knows about it then how does it get executed right we have mechanisms in place both electronic and uh, hard copy mechanisms that are easily locatable but are still secure and provide advice as to what to do who to tell where to store things 
And in, again, in each family situation, it's different because if everybody lived in the same house, I think it would be pretty easy, meaning that... Yep. This is the place where you put your wealth. Right, right. <laughs> but everybody's homes are different. And yeah. so we talk to people and say, okay, here's where I want you to keep a copy. Here's where I want you to keep the originals. Here's what I want you to tell this person. And here's the electronic cloud storage copy on a secure server. Uh, and here's some cards that we can have people, uh, you know, get so that they can locate documents and contact professionals if something were to happen. Are there any other questions that you get frequently or questions that you wish that people asked you Ooh, that they boy. don't? <laughs> Good question. Hmm. Yeah, there is. There is a question. A common question, although not typically from clients, but that I'm asked in interviews and other contexts is, why would I want to consult with a professional when maybe I can just do this myself or I can just go on the internet with all these services today? And my answer to that is to draw an analogy of whitewater rafting down the Snake River. Certainly you can go down to the local sports store and buy a raft and a life preserver and some oars, go get your permit and try to raft the rapids at or down the Snake River. In those circumstances, unless you're an experienced rafter, the chance of flipping, getting injured, or even passing away are huge. That's why you get a guide to help you down with the proper equipment and guide you through the rapids. Going through the calm waters is easy, but it's the rapids that we're really concerned about. So having a professional on the estate planning side guides you through those rapids and really helps you plan appropriately because there are three types of information in the world. There's things that you know, there's things that you don't know, and the worst are the things that you don't know that you don't know. And in the estate planning world, there's a whole lot that, if unless you're trained, that you don't know that you don't know. And those things can come back to bite you and flip your raft to mix the analogy here or, um, you know, cause some damage to your estate or those that you'll leave behind. So having the proper tools and equipment and the proper guide uh, in this process is really important, just like it would be if you were rafting down the Snake River and were not a frequent rafter. That's a great analogy. What are some of the biggest missteps or pieces that are overlooked when you see people who come to you with the do-it-yourself estate plan online or who have passed away with the do-it-yourself estate plan and the family's trying to figure out what they did? The Probably the biggest thing that I see is ambiguity and in, am, uh, in the documents. Ambiguity is when the same thing can be read more than once or, or it can be read more than one different way. And if a provision in the will or power of attorney or trust can be read in uh, two or more different ways, that's when disputes occur and that's when attorneys get involved and that's when it costs the estate unnecessarily. Um, the other thing I think see is when I go through an estate plan from someone who's done it themselves or got it from the internet, I'll ask them a question and their response is, oh, I didn't think about that. Oh, the software didn't ask me that. Oh, that's something unique to our family that wasn't covered. 
oh, maybe we should have something along those lines. <laughs> and so, again, it's like the whitewater analogy, you know, not knowing what you don't know can really hurt you here. And so this is one of those areas where you kind of pay for what you get. And it's not like changing a shower curtain where if you make a mistake and the shower curtain falls down, so what? Your floor gets a little wet. This is a little bit like changing the brakes on the car. If you make a mistake, you could kill yourself or others. And here you could cost yourself or others. Absolutely. Well, this has been really helpful, Bob. We really appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me at any time. And I'm glad to be of assistance to you and your listeners. Yeah, much appreciated. We would love to hear your feedback and suggestions for future topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing podcast at thefinitygroup.com or by following Finity Group on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Finity Group LLC. You can follow me on Twitter at Corey Janoff CFP or on LinkedIn under my name, Corey Janoff. You can follow me on Twitter at Rochelle Finance or on LinkedIn as well. Check out all the podcast episodes on thefinitygroup.com slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out our blog, thefinitygroup.com slash blog. Thanks for listening to this episode of Financial Clarity for Doctors by Affinity Group, LLC.